The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box in your headlines this morning. U.S. stocks fall and 10-year Treasury yields reach highs not seen since 2019 after Fed Governor Jerome Powell issues another stark warning on inflation, saying the central bank is prepared to take more action. We conclude that it is appropriate to move more aggressively by raising the federal funds rate by more than 25 basis points at a meeting or meetings. We will do so. And if we determine that we need to tighten beyond common measures of neutral and into a more restrictive stance, we'll do that as well. U.S. President Joe Biden says Russia is considering using chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine, warning that President Vladimir Putin may resort to desperate tactics. He wasn't anticipating the extent or strength of our unity. And the more his back is against the wall, the greater the severity of the tactics he may employ. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, says any compromise with Russia to bring an end to the war would need to be approved by referendum, adding that a meeting with President Putin would also be crucial. First of all, a ceasefire should be declared. Troops should be withdrawn. Presidents should meet and agree on troop withdrawals and security guarantees. It's possible to find a compromise here. The European Union is ready to impose more sanctions on Russia as a full oil embargo gains more support from member states, driving crude prices higher. It is certainly a turning point for the European Union as a security provider and very much important step for the European security and defence policy. Very good morning, everybody. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said the U.S. Central Bank could move further and faster than previously indicated, striking a hawkish tone in remarks to the National Association for Business Economics. Powell said the FOMC could lift interest rates more aggressively by more than 25 basis points at a time if required to tackle inflation that is, quote, much too high. The Fed chair also acknowledged previous assumptions about inflation only being transitory were well and truly debunked. The expectation going into this year was that we would see basically see inflation peaking in the first quarter then maybe leveling out and then see a lot of progress in the second half. That story has already fallen apart to the extent it continues to fall apart. Uh, my colleagues and I may well reach the conclusion that we'll need to move more quickly and if so we'll do so. Sorry, I know I'm supposed to be at the wall now, but because yeah. you're here, why is that news? And I, I had this brief conversation. Sorry, I was being rhetorical. Yes. Yeah, um, uh, mm. I had this brief conversation with the producers and you earlier on. Yeah. I was like, well, why is that news? Well, the markets have moved on the back of it. The bomb. I was like, yeah, yeah. I get that. But, but there's nothing that... I was looking what he said, and I went into real detail of what he said. I went through the whole speech. Mm. And? Well, where's the new news? Why, um, why suddenly, all of a sudden, when he said this... Or, or, or we've seen other Fed members say this, and we've seen 
Um, the St. Louis Fed governor um, talking about 50 basis points and others. Waller potentially talking about it as well. Why is this news that actually if the data shows that there is a continuation of sticky and accelerated inflation, that the Fed will be prepared to raise rates at an accelerated time frame? Why is that news? Um, it, well, it's news because it's the latest thing that he said about interest rates and the direction of interest rates. Whether he has um, just shifted the nuance somewhat, I think, is in the eye of the market. And the, and the market has clearly decided that he has by talking about the possibility of okay. more than 25 at a meeting. But of course, you know, last time we heard from the Fed after the last meeting, they basically acknowledged that a range of possible outcomes were exactly. likely. Exactly. So in that sense, I agree with you that what he said now was encompassed in all previous FOMC statements. So, so but this is the latest thing he so said, so the markets are reacting on so it. So bloke who gets inflation mm. wrong for mm. the entire COVID period yes. now says we're going to be more hawkish and all of a sudden the bond yield picks up 50 basis points or whatever it is in the, la in, in the month so far. Yes. Karen. Yeah, you got it. I think if you look at the wide range of forecasts, the market had a view that power was somewhat moderate, somewhat in between some of these very wide forecasts. And it's really, if you take the, the both ends of it, it's Bostick versus Bullard. I mean, Bostick's talking about 1.63% percent on the um, on the interest rate. But if you look at what you've got from Bullard, he's calling 3% this year. I mean, that's double. So you've almost doubled. So you've got a very wide range here. And if you've now got effectively Powell saying, well, we could be leaning towards that more accelerated view towards the Bullard view, then the markets had to reprice. I mean, very different scenario, 1.6% uh, versus 3%. I think the other point yesterday is that the market got on board with this front-loading notion. There had been this sort of pathway that every meeting was a live meeting, 25 basis points spread out across the year. But so the commentary that came through really yesterday was that there could be this front loading that you get the 50 basis points away you start to bring forward those interest rate hikes and then they may tail off a little bit over the course of the year and you did see that in terms of pricing on bond markets uh, Fed fund futures for instance put a 90% odds at at least 150 basis point hike by June this year so I think that's where the repricing was it was on this accelerated time frame front loading it and that was the terminology the market had to react to. I'm going to say what I said again, but I'm going to add in another culprit now. I don't know who I trust less for knowing about the direction of interest rates and the direction of the US economy. What the Federal Reserve Governor has said over the chair has said over the last uh, couple of years, or indeed the bond market, which is completely mispriced a lot of it as well. I'm sorry, Karen, but I don't think either of them have been great barometers. We've got to move on. Let's take a look at these US markets from yesterday. And again, people say, oh, and the US markets fell. Again concentration of a gnat, some of you lot out there, memory of a goldfish, and I think that might be insulting to goldfish, because the US markets last week, we saw the S&P up 6.2%. We saw the NASDAQ and the Dow Transports up over 8%. We saw the Dow up over 5%. And then people started, started putting headlines out there, US markets fall. Uh, well, the S&P was flat for a start. The Dow was down eight, six tenths of one percent, and the Nasdaq lost a paltry 0.4. When you consider that compared to what we rallied the previous week, I don't know. Maybe you need to remember what happened a couple of days earlier rather than a couple of minutes earlier. Let's have a look at the Treasuries. As Karen quite rightly pointed out, the Treasuries are picking up 233 to yield on the 10-year. Do you know what? I don't even care about the 10-year at the moment. What I care about is the short end of the curve because that is what, as Karen was pointing out, is being priced aggressively in now, these, these uh, hikes in the shorter term. What are they doing? And also, one thing we haven't heard yet that I can guarantee 
you're going to start hearing because we hear it every single cycle is well what the fed is doing is it's, it's getting hikes in now so that it has some ammo to cut them when we get the recession remember that one guarantee you they're going to start saying that one 217 on the two-year which is again a stunningly high in fact way higher than what the 10-year has been for most of the last two years five-year trading at 236 which by the way is higher than the 10-year a little bit of an inversion there let's have a look at the dollar crosses as well the dollar index putting on 0.3 of one percent yesterday and again look at the bank of england you've got the bank of england karen and i spoke about this last week as well the bank of england uh, is had a what is it a dovish hike they call it last week well a dovish hike when you're expecting potentially double digit inflation in the UK well, some of the things you've already got double digit inflation in the UK in many aspects of life. And I'm not just talking about food and energy. 131 on sterling. What does that say about what the market thinks about the UK economy? Bearing in mind, 130 is where we spent most of our time during the last six years since we had that uh, Brexit vote in the middle of 2016. Right. Let's have a quick look at WTI Brent and gold as well. Wow, here we go again. Brent's up to 119, WT up to 114.9, spot gold trading 1936. Asian indices look like this. Nikkei's putting on 1.5%. And that's amazing, isn't it? You've got the Japanese market managing to rally. Have you seen their import bill for energy, by the way? Have you seen the percentage post Fukushima of what they import in terms of hydrocarbons? It's huge. And so their bills are going through the roof for the Japanese industrial complex. But still, we're seeing rallies on the market. They're 1.5% higher. Uh, consolidation gains again on the Hang Seng after last week's extraordinary moves, 1.8% higher. ASX up eight temps, but we have the nifty 50 down four temps of 1%. Opening calls for European indices look like this. We are called e I don't know why the producers have done this, but thank you, producers. You've given us decimals. Wow. Who'd have thought that we'd have got 29.1 uh, lower on the FTSE MIB, 47.6 lower. That's detail for you. You don't get that on other business channels. Jeff. Yeah, no, it's interesting uh, as you were looking at the Hong Kong market. I just wanted to reference that because obviously historically I have a connection and I like to follow that market very closely. Very interesting comments from Carrie Lam through the weekend saying that nine countries that were previously not on the flight list are now reinstated, including the UK, the USA, Canada and Australia. And I do think that in spite of some concerns there might be about the uh, economic recovery for Hong Kong, at least they might be getting some bounce this week on the prospects of uh, um, air routes being opened up once again and the time spent in quarantine being halved for those flying into Hong Kong. So maybe, maybe the Hong Kong government is finally starting to figure out how to deal with the COVID crisis. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense to me. We've got, I don't know who else on the fly list, but let's just use the example for a bit. We're coming off the no-fly list, yeah? Yes. Our COVID numbers are the worst they've been in months. Uh, in Hong Kong, they're starting to roll over. Yeah, but what so I'm saying is they're, take, they're, they're saying we can fly in now, yeah? Uh, that's what they're saying, yeah. But we've got the worst COVID figures we've had in months. When you say us, do you mean Hong Kong? I mean or the do British. You mean the, the British. England, right. here, London. Right, right. Over 75s are at record levels. Uh, but they have decided that Hong Kong apparently now is not going to have necessarily the strict zero COVID policy of China. But, and that maybe there's some middle ground here where Hong Kong learns to live with it, as we've been told we're doing here in the UK. And the mainland? The mainland sticks to zero COVID as far as I can see. So but, you have... but, well, hang on, let, wow. me, let me wheel back on that. 
The mainland says it sticks to zero COVID, but they've invented this thing called the COVID bubble, which allows companies like Foxconn to continue manufacturing in Shenzhen and allows port cities to keep the ports up and running and allows manufacturing plants to keep manufacturing. So it's not zero COVID anymore? Well, there you go. You have that conversation with Xi Jinping. I'm not going there. But he insists it's still zero COVID. But what's clear is that actually there's a bit of a relief bounce going on around I'm, Chinese assets. I'm the assets. last person to argue with President Xi, but it doesn't sound like zero COVID. No, does it, it doesn't, does no. it? Karen. And yet, just wanted to pick up on the point around COVID because you do bring it into the equation as we talk about the stocks, Jeff. And I think that's the point for markets. If we're talking about front-loading interest rate hikes, then it takes out the variables, doesn't it? I mean, the variable all along has been what happens with COVID, what happens if more restrictions are required. Every time winter comes around, do we start to shave off some of the percentage growth? And then do we also start to derail the, the path for monetary policy? But if you front-load interest rates, then the variables are gone around COVID, around the geopolitics, around everything. You actually have to in those interest rate hikes in your portfolio. So I think the adjustment we're seeing on markets is very much around the notion that, well, even if policymakers are wrong, it could be what we get anyway. That, that is exactly what could be served up to markets. One of the other points that um, a market commentator made yesterday, DataTrack, was that there's very little room for disappointment around the Q1 earnings numbers, that they've been slowly guided higher in recent weeks. But given where valuations are at, if there's any form of disappointment, it could be a somewhat an aggressive sell-off that we see on markets. So I think that's worth bearing in mind because we've been so fixated on COVID, so concerned about the geopolitics and rising oil prices, that there's not been much discussion these days about what the actual earnings look like at this stage. So room for disappointment is something perhaps investors and portfolio managers need to think about at this point. Well, let me uh, just push on. I'll leave that conversation there. We are going to... Uh, Move and shift our focus to China. Rescuers have not found any survivors from the China Eastern Airlines crash, according to the Chinese state broadcaster. The Boeing 737 plane came down in a mountainous area near the city of Wuzhou, carrying 132 people. China Eastern has grounded all of its planes of the same model as it investigates the cause of the crash. The plane type does not have the same equipment as the 737 MAX planes, which were globally grounded for a year and a half after two fatal accidents. Boeing shares dropped over 3% on Monday's session, while China Eastern shares are falling in today's trading. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. The European Union approves a new security and defence plan as Russia's war against Ukraine enters its fourth week. Details on that story when we come back. And for more on Powell's more hawkish tone at the National Association for Business Economics, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. The war in Ukraine is now in its fourth week and Ukraine's military says residents should brace for more Russian shelling of critical infrastructure. This is hundreds of thousands of residents remain trapped in the southern port city of Mariupol, while attacks reportedly intensified on the second city, Kharkiv. 
U.S. President Joe Biden has issued one of his strongest warnings yet that Moscow is now considering the use of chemical weapons and possible cyber attacks as Russia's Vladimir Putin grows increasingly frustrated by his stalled efforts. Now Putin's back against the wall. He wasn't anticipating the extent or strength of our unity. And the more his back is against the wall, the greater the severity of the tactics he may employ. We've seen it before. He's run a lot of false flag operations. Whenever he starts talking about something he thinks NATO, Ukraine, or the United States is about to do, it means he's getting ready to do it. Not a joke. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has said any major concessions to end the war with Russia would require approval by referendum. Zelensky said he's prepared to abandon NATO membership efforts in exchange for a ceasefire, the withdrawal of Russian troops and a guarantee of Ukraine's security. I explained to our groups participating in talks that when they are discussing changes that can be historic, we can't avoid it and we will come to a referendum. People will have to say and give an answer to this, or that form of compromise that you mentioned. What kind of formats will it be? It's the subject of discussion and understanding between Russia and Ukraine. I know we've got to move on, but my, my, my problem with the guarantee of security is we already had one. It's called the Budapest Memorandum, and we talked a lot about this in 2014 and beyond, uh, about the guarantees that were given to states such as Ukraine for giving up their nuclear weapons. So, uh, which you know, Russia was also a signatory Which Russia to, was a signatory Which is now of. the invading country. The signatories were Russia, United States, UK, yeah. uh, Kazakhstan, uh, and Ukraine. So, yes. you know, we had a guarantee. Yes. And we have a, a devastating war in Ukraine. Uh, an increasing number of European Union members are supportive of a Russian oil embargo. However, the move still faces resistance from Germany and the Netherlands. The bloc is preparing to impose even stricter sanctions on Moscow, uh, but the continent's dependence on Russian energy looks set to be a key sticking point at talks in Brussels later this week. Let's uh, move on. The European Union's foreign and defence ministers have approved a new security strategy, which, amongst other things, will see it establishing a rapid reaction force of up to 5,000 troops. Um, again, I'm going to ask a question that's been asked many, many times, Sylvia. Um, why does the EU need a rapid reaction force when we have a rapid reaction force? And in fact, you've just been to Estonia to look at part of it. It's called NATO. So essentially, this plan is a incorporation to what NATO has been doing to all of the NATO operations that are on the ground. And we cannot forget that this is not something that the European Union put together overnight. In fact, this was a plan that the EU had been developing over the last two years. And in the aftermath of what we saw in Afghanistan late last summer, and now after the invasion of Ukraine, this plan has been stepped up. And essentially the idea from the European Union is to be more secure, is to take action to become more secure. So not necessarily just on the military front, but in terms of cyber defense, for instance, the EU wants to do more in that regard. And in fact, Joseph Borrell, the EU's foreign affairs chief, he explained that this plan is not about forming a European army. We have to invest more. And I am sure that everybody will understand that we want to push defense innovation and to be more able to face situations like the one we are facing today in Ukraine. We need capabilities. And with 1.5 of the GMP, it's not enough. We have to spend more but we have to spend better. This 200,000 million euros is more or less 
four times the military expenditure of Russia. Altogether, we spend almost four times Russia, but certainly not with the same efficiency. 200,000 million euros is the same military expenditure of China. Altogether, we spend as much as China, but certainly it's not the same thing, 27 different parts that one integrated military structure. We don't want to create an European army. It's not about creating a European army. The European armies will remain, each member state having its own military army. So European Foreign Affairs Ministers and Defence Ministers agreed to put together this plan yesterday. And essentially the commitment that's on the table is to invest more on defence. But Jeff, let's see what that will mean for the finance ministers when it comes to adjusting fiscal rules, because there will be a lot more spending on this front. And what will that mean for deficits and debts across the Eurozone going forward? All right, Sylvia, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Sorry, do we need as a channel to, I mean, uh, uh, absolutely accurate, everything that Sylvia said, but do we have any yeah. European Union fiscal rules? Do we have any? Uh, well, Do we have fiscal rules in Europe? I thought we had something cool. Was it the Growth and Stability Pact, yes. uh, early 90s, Maastricht and all that? 60% debt to GDP. 60% debt to GDP. Right. Yeah, and plus the deficit limit. deficit. But the mean right. debt to GDP in Europe is over 100%. Ah, but it's been... this. We've been in an emergency for the last two years with COVID, so we've been able to override and suspend... The, what about the emergency uh, before the one, before the one, before the one? We, well, there was always an exceptional reason for why the Germans or the French or somebody else breached it, wasn't there? Because they breached it first. Absolutely. Led the template for the Greeks, and, the Italians, and didn't, didn't for everyone else. Didn't get fined, as I remember. No, did they? Hate? Strangely, <laughs> um, <laughs> U.S. President. Uh, uh, well, to be continued. We'll come back to this. Obviously, um, ad nauseum forever, probably. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden hosted a call with European leaders on Monday ahead of his planned trip to Europe where leaders are set to underscore their continued support for Ukraine, including by providing humanitarian and security assistance. Michael Baranowski is a senior fellow and director at the German Marshall Fund at the Warsaw office. Michael, nice to have you with us. Maybe we could just start. If I could get your assessment with where you think we are now in terms of this conflict. Is it the frozen, attrition-based conflict that so many warned of already? Well, it's certainly an attrition conflict. Um, Russia has moved from what they would hope would be a, a blitzkrieg, a very quick assault on Ukraine, uh, and they failed in, the, in this. So now they turn to shelling uh, cities, uh, uh, killing civilians. The best example and the worst, the most tragic, tragic one is, of course, Mariupol. But it's not a frozen conflict by any means. It's a stalemate but in which Ukrainians uh, keep um, uh, dying. That's why the Western support is still very necessary, but in which, of course, Russia is not reaching its strategic objectives. So we have a, we're hearing these warnings at the moment that Russia is preparing to use chemical weaponry. In your opinion, would that tip us into a full-fledged conflict between NATO and Russia if that were to happen? Well, it's an excellent question, and I'm sure that this is something that the leaders of NATO that will be meet, meeting this week in Brussels and then President Biden will be traveling to, to Warsaw will, will discuss. 
Um, Putin is unfortunately desperate, and uh, he he's uh, he's not winning. He's cornered, and that's why we are all worried about the use of chemical weapons. Um, which would be a terrible escalation. This is also something that we are seeing in Russia, Russia media. Uh, fr frankly, I don't know how Western democracies will react to it. It's We have shown again and again uh, that it's a bit of an unpredictable uh, business uh, with on our side. And I, I see many more, um, much more of a change on the West than I that I expected. So, but clearly the West will have to come up with a much better response uh, and much um, greater support for Ukraine if this unfortunate use of chemical weapons was to happen. It's stunning that we're having this conversation, isn't it? If we think back to Syria and the use of chemical weapons was seen as a red line. And right in Europe now, we're discussing that potential. What type of deterrence could we see happen or see used from the West? You know, what would be useful here? We've already been discussing potential oil embargoes from the European side, but it doesn't feel as though that even would be enough. Right. There, there are really three elements that will have to uh, happen as this, uh, as this, if this war escalates, but even if it just continues, and we'll have to dial up and down uh, those. One is the military support for Ukraine. We, the West, has done a lot. President Biden last week signed another bill, uh, shifting 800 million of military help to Ukraine. We are passing on more advanced anti-aircraft and anti-missile weapons that has to continue and probably increase so it's the Ukrainians who can close the sky over, over their heads. Sanctions will certainly uh, have to be continue be part of the pressure on, on Russia. Um, now, of course, if the war escalates further uh, with the use of chemical weapons, the sanctions will have to be uh, really uh, <laughs> will have to come to the end of, of sort of this pressure. And the third element is, and this is why Biden is traveling to, to Poland, is to support the eastern flank of the alliance to make sure with, with military, with different posture, to make sure that this war does not spill into uh, NATO territory. I want to discuss that a little bit further with you because a Pentagon spokesperson yesterday said that this is the 9-11 moment for Europe, the wake-up call that we are, we are seeing about the threat from Russia. Do you think it is? Do you think that Europe really perceives that there is a, a threat from Russia at this point, that the end game, as the Ukrainians have been warning, is not just Ukraine, it is far beyond that in terms of what Russia has also been uh, saying publicly? Well, you know, President Putin um, spelled out very clearly what his ambition is before he started this war. Point, no, point number one was Ukraine. Point number two was uh, basically a gray zone in Central and Eastern Europe. And point number three was making sure that American uh, America is no longer a European power. So he's 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 grind to a stall stalemate on uh, ambition number one. Point number one, but that does not mean that he forgot of, of the other two. And that's why we do have to prepare. We finally have to take him seriously. And if you ask if Europe is changing its mind, I think we are. Uh, again, with different speeds. Uh, in my region, I'm speaking to you from Warsaw. This is not news. This is unfortunately just 
a confirmation of something that we have seen develop already with a war in Georgia in 2008 and then attack on Ukraine in 2014. But I think the rest of the Europe is turning around uh, as well. And um, Americans are pointing this uh, to this awakening because it is clear from their perspective that it will not be only the US who will have to provide the new level of security, this new very very strong forward posture of NATO in Central and Eastern Europe. It will have to be both the Americans and the Europeans who stand up to Putin's Russia also in NATO's territory. And yet, Michael, I've been doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of history, trying to work out about the Russian psyche, whether it comes from some form of nationalism, pan-Slavism, whatever it may well be. But it was a great quote from Catherine the Great that the only way to defend Russia's borders is to expand Russia's borders. You're talking about a more forward-enhanced NATO, Russia looking to expand its borders. Are we genuinely looking at the foothills of World War III? I, I think we are looking at... Um, First of all, hopefully not. Uh, Secondly, uh, we might be looking at the end of Russia as we have known it because Putin really overextended himself. But if he survives this, I think what we might be looking at is uh, foothills of new Cold War, where uh, Baltic states, Poland, Romania become the new West Germany, where we have the forward posture of NATO that we have seen in Western Germany during Cold War, um, proportionally adjusted. So, the, the, but the, your question points to an objective number one, which is making sure that this, uh, this war does not escalate and that this war does come to an end, that Russia pulls out from Ukraine and that we find some kind of the Ukrainians and Russians with the Western help find some kind of political settlement that um, allows for this for this conflict to come to this very bloody conflict to come to an end. Final question for me. You just mentioned if he survives this, talking about President Putin politically and domestically as well. I'm not going to mention the number, but a pro-Kremlin tabloid, Komsolmaiskaya, uh, has just mentioned a number which it believes is the true figure of Russian soldiers dead in Ukraine. Again, I'm not going to glory in any deaths at all. I'm not going to mention the number. But if those kind of numbers are true, does the pressure on President Putin start building up domestically? Absolutely. This is this is he is not doing well in this in this war. Um, propaganda is only you know using propaganda is only as far as you can you can you can take it. Russian Russian soldiers are dying. Ukrainians are dying. And let's remember that for most uh, Russians, they they see Ukraine not as the enemy country, right? They've been fed this wrong propaganda about Nazism and and, and other um, um, lies. So there is going to be a pressure. Now, this is an authoritarian, uh, brutal state. So we will see probably much more repression inside Russia. Uh, I would not overstate this possibility, but because he is so cornered, because this war is going so badly, uh, one should not exclude the possibility that there is something happening inside Russia that ends his power um, in a, well, which would be preferable situation and and outcome to to this bloody conflict, of course. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.